Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. 1 Peter chapter 4, and this morning uh, we're going to be studying verses 7 through 11. So there you see, beginning in verse 7, that Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. What a treasure trove for us. We ask now that you would come and by the mercy and power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to become that differential community of Jesus in the midst of our world today, this last age. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I came across a commercial not too long ago can't remember the product to save my life, so I suppose the commercial was a fail at one level. But there were some folks in a bar, or something like it, and, and the world began to end. Uh, you had, you know, the, the, the asteroids and the explosions and all these kinds of things, and, and the people had all lost their minds, and uh, they were, you know, running around uh, for any kind of cover they could find, except for two people. There's a guy, and there's a gal, and there's a nearby jukebox. And the jukebox starts playing, and these two begin to dance together as if everything's fine with the world, as if they're in their own little world, as if the end, which terrified everyone else, was the start of something truly beautiful for them. Or at least that's... How I might spin it, maybe you know the ad to which I'm referring better than I do. But it begs a provocative question for us. What would we do if we knew the end of this world was at hand? How would we live if we knew literally everything was imminently destined to pass away? Would we respond as 
If it were just a, a dead end, meaningless, purposeless, dark, as if our eternity were in these few short days. Many live like that in practice. We saw it a week ago in the passage that George preached for us, a life there enslaved to sensuality and to drunkenness and to orgies and to drinking parties and lawless idolatry. And what we're seeing in those things, friends, is that there is a hopeless worldview behind that flood of debauchery. You peel it back, and what you're going to find is a lost mentality, an imprisoned soul, a Christless heart, a dead life. You're going to find a person and a people living against the truth that Jesus has actually won and that there is in Him life without end. And what an opportunity then we have to stand out amid all this moral chaos, to be this stark gospel relief in this world to be really the people of Jesus. That's our calling. That's what we're seeing in 1 Peter. It's to be God's alternate society amid this fallen one. It's to be the community of Christ reflecting the cross because we've all been raised from the dead in our souls. It's to be a foretaste of a world beyond the end of this one. It's a high calling. It is a high calling. None greater among us, I'd say. And once again, it's in our text where we see two stated facts. At the front end of the passage, you see there is the end of all things. It's at hand. And then on the back end of the text, you see God yet has a forever and everlasting kingdom. And we know this. As Christians, we know this, and indeed we are, by God's mercy, a part of it such that we meet with an all-critical question, really our mission, how is it that we're to showcase God's everlasting kingdom in this last age amid a perishing world? In what convicting ways are we to be victoriously distinct as those knowingly on the brink of eternity. Peter's answer is that at the end of all, we're to be laboring to glorify God in all. Which gets really practical for us in our passage. So let's come to our text and deal First, with God's historical reality here, the imminent end of all things, and then we'll come to our practical response to it as this differential community of Jesus Christ. And then we'll close with Peter's worshipful reaffirmation of our overall goal in this last age. And so we'll just take it from the top here. Uh, Peter writes, if you look at verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? Uh, obviously, he didn't mean the actual end was immediately upon them, although as Jesus tells us, uh, it could be at any moment. Uh, but Peter's focus isn't on a point in time as much as it is an epic of salvation history, redemptive history. As the New Testament understands it, with the resurrection of Jesus, came this last age 
of this fallen and passing world. Previously, uh, there was the historical reality, in fact, of the creation of all things. That was an age, but that age passed away with the fall and the ruin of all things. And then, though, there was uh, God's promise of redemption through Jesus Christ, which was the age of promise. And that age lasted until Christ actually came. And God fulfilled His promise. Christ crucified for sinners. And then, with the resurrection of Jesus, a new age began. A new age began. And that's the age in which we now live. Peter's saying, there's nothing beyond it so far as this groaning version of creation is concerned. Indeed, why does it groan? As Romans 8 says it does. But because after the fall, God subjected, it says, this creation to futility in hope of Christ's remodeling project. So, what Peter means by the imminent end of all things is that this age that we're in is this world's last age, right? History, the sweep of history is proving what the Bible speaks everywhere, that there is a telos, right? There is an end to this world. There is a goal to which God is moving this whole operation. He is the alpha, he is the omega, and in his sovereign plan, there's nothing more beyond this age that we're in except the return of Jesus and judgment and the Christian's vindication and then a new creation. Right? The everlasting renovation of all things to the glory of God, which will include the everlasting removal of all things and peoples existing not to the glory of God. Uh, friends, listen. We live on the razor's edge of eternity. The consummation of God's kingdom on earth, which ought to prompt us to a very serious inquiry. What side of that eternal kingdom are we on? Redemption and renovation or removal to condemnation? We need to understand here just how comprehensive a thing Christianity really is. Right? However one may try, there is just no getting around this king of glory at the end of the day. All, and not just people, but the whole universe is going to have to deal with Christ. Because it has to do with Him. All of it. And so as one put it, quote, uh, the Christian faith is not merely an anthropological phenomenon, a human thing, uh, that by custom is exercised on Sunday morning in a church building. What a puny, unbiblical view of the thing is that. No, the gospel of Christ is a reality of cosmic scope. 
that touches everyone and everything, she says, on the planet, but really throughout the entire universe. And Peter's point is that that ultimate touch is in the on-deck circle. The end is just around the bend. Up next, the power that enables Jesus to subject even all things to Himself. And to Peter's next move then, Christ has not left Himself or this world without a witness to this. And I'll give you one guess as to what that witness is. It's us. I feel that. It's the church living to pray, praying to love, loving to serve, serving to the glory of God. It's the church at full attention living in light of glory. Beloved, Peter cannot be more emphatic. The church is a really big deal. And being a meaningful part of one is cosmically gigantic. From chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 4, verse 11, this has been Peter's, please hear me, loud and clear. If you've missed any of it, let me urge you just to go back and listen as he unfolds for us the essential existence and excellence of Christ's church. Let's not leave 1 Peter without a massive view of who we are to the glory of God. This is a disease of the day. The effect of a corrosive cultural Christianity. The individual ideologies of our world creeping into God's gathered people that the church is a nicety, but it's not a necessity. That she's not that big of a deal when in fact she's at the very center of God's redemptive purpose in Christ. That I can be a great Christian apart from priority investment in one of God's local churches. The Holy Spirit, by Peter, cannot disagree more. And beloved, again, we are then, for this world, <laughs> the first fruit of a new creation. We're given to display the beauty of the glory and grace that lies just beyond the veil of this world and never has an end. And so to any who cares to see, we're a signpost to that coming city of God. We're a taste of heaven on earth before earth is heaven's home again. Is that how we view our excellent, motley crew? As breadcrumbs 
to the throne of grace and the glory of God and a world without end for a world that's lost in the woods of death and sin. As Christ's tangible, left-behind evidence that eternal life has actually invaded the end so that the end can be survived with courage and hope and joy in Christ. And beloved, I trust you sense the use in this for us. Peter certainly gives it utility. He means for it to galvanize us and to squeeze the most out of us in this world for His glory. I coach flag football. At least I try to. And one of the things I try to say before and after every game in practice is, hey, let's get better. Let's go get better. We don't want to be our best at the beginning of the season. We want to be our best at the end. We want to be our best when it matters most. And Peter's saying to the church, now is the time that matters most. Now is the time for the church not to be all apathetic and worldly, but vigorously Vigilant, laborious, and altogether lovely. So let's come then to our practical response to God's historical reality. So what of all we could be about should we mainly be about as an embassy of God's lasting kingdom in this creation's last age? Peter specifies four things. Number one, rest of verse seven, live to pray. Live to pray. Look at verse seven there. He writes, the end of all things is at hand. That's what we just covered. Now he goes on. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for... The sake of your prayers. Hmm. Beloved, does getting time in the prayer closet dictate how we use the time we have? When it comes to our conduct, do we have the prayer meeting in mind? Is prayer a north star for us? Do we live so as to pray. I'm convicted by the thought, as we live for God on the edge of eternity, Peter's saying we're to give great care to great prayer. The simple fact is this. We don't pray as we ought. I think pretty much any believer in here would say that. We don't pray as we ought because we don't intend to pray as we ought. We aren't self-controlled or sober-minded, because we aren't controlled by the thought of Christ's return. We think this is our home. This is our home. And insofar as we think that, we become like those virgins in the parable who are ill-prepared 
for the bridegroom's return. Right? They used his delay as an excuse to be drowsy. And we all know that that ended very poorly for them. Or we think of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, how though Jesus called them to watch and what? Pray. Wake up and pray. Because the hour was evil and the allure of temptation strong. That even though he had done that, called them to that, they what? They slept and snored. And if we put those two images together, we perhaps find a reason that Peter says this first, it's that as we approach the end of all things, we are told, we know from Scripture, things are not going to get easier for the heirs of eternal life. The pull of this world over against that one that's coming is going to only intensify as we get closer and closer to the exchange. And Jesus tells us the love then of many, and I think he means of many professing Christians, the love then of those professing Christians, it's going to go, grow cold. And many are going to fall away. We'll be tempted to grow tired of the battle. If you feel that weariness right now, I just want to say, awake and fight it. For just as soon as you sleep, there is a lion ready to pounce in that night of your soul. Friends, Satan is a sandman. He lies in wait to lull us into spiritual apathy, complacency, inconsistency, insobriety. Listen, if I can just blind them to ultimacy, they will lose all of their urgency. They'll be mine for the taking. They'll be useless. So I'll just say, if we are largely prayerless, we are in peril. Prayerlessness is the result, not of a sober mind, but one that's drunk on the world. It just is. Not of self-control, but of spiritual recklessness. God invites us to pray, and Satan knowing that's all our power in the world incites us against prayer. Stay up later. Sleep a little longer. Watch another show. Read another post. It's not the end. You've got time. Whatever you do, don't pray. Do we order our days to get to prayer and there to pray fruitfully? Because you see, that's what we do for things we care about. We plan out our day. No off-ramps, right? No time for that. Not a second to spare just so that we can get to do what we want to do most. And church, Peter is saying for us, what we should want to do most in this last age is to pray. 
at the end of all things, would we live together for the glory of God in everything, then we must live to pray. And we must also pray to love. So now in verse 8, Peter continues. You see there, he writes, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So, uh, this love may be a second mark, but as noted in those words, above all, endurance and Christian love is still first priority. Beloved, I think Peter wants us to love one another just like he's told us so many times how he wants us to be gentle with one another. He wants us to love one another with the intensity of a thousand Christmas morns. Earnestly. Haven't we seen this? Endurance in this sincere, brotherly, pure, earnest love practiced especially toward the members of your local church. That's the great evidence for Peter that you are born again. When however unworthy we are of it, you keep on loving those that the world keeps on maligning. You don't ho-hum, leave the church, you love the church to the cross and all the way back. Which here has a wonderful relational effect. Christian love, Peter says, covers a multitude of sins. And so we should love earnestly because we hate sin passionately and love holiness even more. In this last age where we cry, can't we all just get along because it appears no one really can, the church is to be marked above all by relationships that are so saturated with the reconciling love of the cross, that they are unbreakable. Love does this. It's remarkable. We need to be clear on something here. There is only one love that covers a multitude of sins, indeed all our sins, in the sense of atonement. Before the holy justice of God, and that, praise God, is the love of Jesus for us. Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Okay? His love alone has wrought forgiveness with God. His love alone has paid the penalty in full. His love alone has made our way to life without end. Our love for one another does none of that. But it nonetheless, Peter says, does have power to stifle sin. How so? It seems it does this by removing offense when you could give one and by overlooking an offense when one is given to you. It was the, the proverb that says that it's our glory to overlook an offense. It's by refusing to allow sin to take root in our relationships, and certainly by disallowing it to spread in our relationships. Just consider, not the atoning, but the absorbing power 
the absorbing power of Christian love. It is, as Paul details it, patient. That will nullify sin often. Patient, kind, content, humble, polite, forbearing, forgiving, ministerial, self-sacrificial, believing the best, ever hopeful. And more, what Peter has said is that love cancels out all maliciousness, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander, those vices that tear at the fabric of what's destined to be a forever fellowship between you and me and us together. So you want to talk about a cancel culture. That's what Christian love is for sin. It does not allow sinful, divisive elements room to breathe. It puts them to death. It cancels them out. It does not let sin abide. It does not let sin be fertilized. It certainly does not let sin flower. It nips it in the bud. That's what love does. And let me tell you why this is quite remarkable. It's that where we reflect this ethos of heaven, the whole venture of Jesus from his incarnation to his exaltation, which was what? To take away sin, is now seen by all, admitted or not, to be successful and presently fruitful in an assembly that loves one another with the love of Christ. That's amazing. Our love for one another proves the saving love of Jesus for us. Oh, let us be a people who show this truth. Beloved, where this love is a flood, our sins will be few. So above all, let's pray, I'd say, to love. And next, let's love to serve one another. Let's love to serve one another, whereby serve... I really just mean host, serve tables. So you see Peter now says in verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And let's understand, however convicting, that this is an extension of Peter's call to love one another. Where we love, we will happily host. Uh, Christian love equips us not to forego relationships on the premise that they are difficult. But quite to the contrary, it equips us to pursue them, however unnatural they may at first appear, under the principle of reflecting the gracious and welcoming heart of Jesus, never forget, to you and me. We're to engage in relationships that are supernaturally forged. It would help if instead of seeing each other's warts as much as we may do, we saw more of Christ's heart. You remember Jesus all through the Gospels? 
Right? He invited all to come and dine with him. And I mean, I mean, like the very worst of society. He invited them in. And even amongst those that he especially delighted to host, he had a what? A betraying Judas. Who wants to host him? You want to show hospitality to bombastic Peter? He's going to get annoying. A glory-hungry John? Give me the throne over everybody else here. A doubting Thomas? Man, that, that, that requires some endurance with people when they're doubting so much. To be able to minister to their hearts. So you're going to have these kind of people. You're going to have the inconsiderate, the presumptive, the thankless, the under-disciple. And yet, Jesus welcomed them to fellowship with Him around the King's table. Yes, that is a plug for our podcast. Listen. We all have warts and natural irritants. All of us do. We need to take that personal humility pill along with Christ's view of his people as as was read in the call to worship the excellent ones in the land. And far from grumbling about it, we should love to serve one another in the way of Christian hospitality. And what could be more usefully offsetting than Christian hospitality amid anti-Christian hostility. It's a sweet haven for the exile and a show of heaven for the lost. I read the other day of an atheist who, who came to Christ simply because of the kindness of the Christians he experienced in the local church he stumbled into visiting. It confirmed the truth of the gospel for him. A bit more famously, it was Rosaria Butterfield. She was a former uh, lesbian, a popular LGBTQIA activist who was born again and came to Christ largely through the loving table fellowship of a Christian husband and wife. An amazing story of the missional power of gospel hospitality. And in fact, one of her books takes aims at this. is called, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Hmm. Beloved, do we have a key to your house? Because you see, on the edge of eternity, it seems the gospel calls us away from isolation. Away from the assertion of introversion. And I'm an introvert. Away from personal spaces, and I love my personal space. Away from Sunday-only Christianity. Away from family first and only. Away from being hosted, but not ourselves hospitable. Away from creating a calendar exclusive of all of us. Peter's calling us to a radical reorientation around the church as forever family, showcased in hospitality 
if we are really native in Christ, are we going to continue to be foreigners to one another? Brothers and sisters, when did you last host a member of this church in your home? How many here can testify of an invitation to extra church fellowship with you? Could this be part of our our regular Sunday preparation not to establish cliques, but to expand gospel community, to host the loner, to host the visitor, to host the student, to host the family, to host the broken, to host the needy, to host the member you don't know so well. If, Peter seems to say, we are heavenly minded, we will be mighty in universal Christian hospitality. If our eyes are toward the glory of God, we will live and love to serve one another at table. And last but not least, so far as our practical response goes, we will serve to the glory of God. And so Peter writes, it's the largest chunk of our passage here. He says, as each has received a gift, what? Use it. (laughs) Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God Supplies in order that, here's the purpose of the whole passage, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Note this, beloved. Uh, In the new birth, each and every one of you received a spiritual gift from God. At least one. It wasn't natural to you. You were not born with it. You did not have it prior. Something that was not there before was then given to you. And not for entitlement. You see, Peter calls it a grace of God to you. You have it not for your glory then, but for His glory. You have it not as a reward, but as a responsibility. Not just for your benefit, but for the upbuilding of the church. You've been given a gift in degree and kind that is peculiar to you. And Peter urges you then, use it. Use it. You're a steward. You have a manager. Steward it well. Fact is, um, listen, we're not going to be what we could be as a church until the whole body is operating according to its God-given capacity. It's meant to be instructive for us that no one person has all the gifts. No matter what you think of Suzanne or Tiffany or George. (laughs) Sorry, just had to include you there. God's given spiritual gifts so that we need each other. If ever we'd intend to be a fully functioning representation of Jesus to the world. So, are you serving this body? 
go to the parable of the talents and understand if what's given is stewarded poorly, where, where by poorly is also included safely, not at all, Jesus says you can be stripped of your gift and left to the mercy of the Lord who gave it. Sober Christians, those sensitive to the Savior's return and all that it implies for the universe are Christians who serve the church to the glory of God. And this is so much of Peter's punch at the end. You see, he gives two broad categories of gifts. Those for speaking and those for serving. You go to uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Paul's going to parse all that out and break those down for you. Peter does not do that here because that's not his concern. His concern is a church building itself up so that not man, but God gets all the glory. A church that really is a testimony to God's word and God's power. A church that's reinforced not with spiritual straw and hay, just asking to be undone by the winds of this world, but a church that is reinforced with spiritual steel and will stand in that day. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again and again, not all even true churches, whatever their quantity, are equal before God in quality. And quality matters. It really does. God means, you go look at 1 Corinthians 3, God means to test what we are made of. And so I do wonder how much of what we think will glorify God will actually do so. Are we part of a building project that reveals a forever fixture of God or a fading phantasm of man in the name of God? Are we putting the emphasis in the right place? It's so easy to get off track. So Peter comes quickly to our aid here. And he says, if you've been gifted to speak, Speak the oracles of God. Nothing less. And how that word alone should prove sufficient to rebuke and correct so much teaching and so much preaching today. Give the body of Christ the needful word of God. The majestic word of God. The undiluted word of God. We do not need fancies. We don't need funnies. We need forerunners. In appropriate capacities, we need men and women deeply devoted to the Word that makes the church strong. And in this, as in every other sort of service, we've got to learn to depend upon God. We're to serve in the strength. What does Peter say? That He supplies. How do we do that? Very simply. We do that 
by being careful and intentional to pray. It means we need to realize that our natural strength, it can do many things, but it alone is totally inadequate for God's kind of gospel ministry. I can't walk out there, speak to the tombs, and raise the dead. Those stones will laugh me off the lot. But Jesus can raise them up. The power that God supplies, that can do it. We're dealing in the salvation and growth of souls, you understand? It's not about just the persuasion of the mind. There's got to be a new creation. Beloved, the true fruit of our service may be beyond our mere reach, and it is, but as it is in the heart and hand of God, it's within the reach of our prayers. Praise God. So live to pray. Pray to love. Love to serve. Serve to glorify God. In the end of all things, this is how we're to exist together to the glory of God in everything. And to close then, we get Peter's worshipful reaffirmation here into verse 11. He says, To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, by living together, as Peter has just spelled out for us, we're living agreeable to a king and a kingdom that transcends time. And that in itself is so kindly provocative for us. Again, for what and to whom are we living? Dabo's dynasty, as awesome as it has been for this lifelong, long-suffering Clemson football fan, it's going to end. And yet, how much of ourselves do we give to it? Money, time, energy, passion. Our legacies will be hard-pressed to outlast this century. No one's going to know who I am in 2100. And yet, how we do live for our legacies. Rome was not built in a day, that's true. It's also true, it did not last forever and ever. Kingdoms rise. Kingdoms fall. This is the way of all, except the kingdom of our risen and reigning Jesus. It has no end. And in due time, we'll cover all the cosmos in the glory of God to all eternity. A reality that's already at work within each one of you believers. Isn't that wonderful? Is it showing? Are we a church 
testifying in these ways amid the end of all things, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name belongs all the glory and all the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter, for all his failures, ended up being a great man. A great man. A leading apostle. A person who's still known today. 2,000 years later. But what perspective and power there is then in His Amen. It means this, I did all I could for the glory of Christ, but nothing of anything that was ever accomplished was accomplished solely by me, but by the grace of God that was at work within me. He did it all. And so He deserves all the glory. I affirm truly. Amen. It belongs to Him. May we so clearly belong to Him. Unbelieving friend, the end of all things is at hand. But that is not the end. Just around that bend, there is eternity. Let that word have its weight. Eternity. And don't doubt it. Christ left you a sign of its reality in His church. We too were once dead in sin. But now we live to God. We've been saved by grace for glory. And you now are invited to it. Just turn from your sins. Trust in the saving achievements of Christ. And God will forgive you. He will receive you as His own. And He will never let you go. Ever. Beloved, if you knew today was your last day, how would that change it for you? What would you do? How would you live? Along those lines, we know this age we're in is the last age. How should that change us? How should we respond as a church? Peter's told us this morning, live to pray, pray to love, love to serve, serve to the glory of God. While all others are running around all crazy, be the differential community of the King of Glory. One age left. That's it. One age left. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and ask now that as you have helped us through it, please help us to go from it. Make the word to live in us. It is living and active and abiding. Help us to be all those things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.